Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 21. The sun rose above clouds, above fog, and with the gray day came a silver drizzle. The city was lanced by needles of rain, and filth drained from it, swelling the gutters with a poisonous flood. St. Mary's social workers did not arrive with dawn, so Celestina was given the privacy of one of the offices, where the wet face of the morning pressed blurrily at the windows, and where she phoned her parents with the terrible news. From here, too, she arranged with the mortician to collect Femi's body from the cold storage locker in the hospital morgue, embalm it, and have it flown home to Oregon. Her mother and father wept bitterly, but Celestina remained composed. She had much to do many decisions to make before she accompanied her sister's body on the flight out of San Francisco. When finally her obligations were met, she would allow herself to feel the loss, the misery against which she was now armored. Femi deserved dignity in this final journey to her northern grave. When Celestina had no further calls left to make, Dr. Lipscomb came to her. He was no longer in his scrubs, but wore gray wool slacks and a blue cashmere sweater over a white shirt. Face somber, he looked less like an obstetrician engaged in the business of life than a principal of philosophy, forever pondering the inevitability of death. She started to get up from the chair behind the desk, but he encouraged her to stay seated. He stood at a window, staring down into the street, his profile to her, and in his silence he searched for the words to describe the something extraordinary that he had mentioned earlier. Droplets of rain shimmered on the glass and tracked downward. Reflections of those tracks appeared to stigmatic tears on the long face of the physician. When at last he spoke, real grief, quiet but profound, softened his voice. March 1st, three years ago, my wife and two sons, Danny and Harry, both seven, twins, were coming home from visiting her parents in New York. Shortly after takeoff, their plane went down. Having been so wounded by one death, Celestina could not imagine how Lipscomb could have survived the loss of his entire family. Pity knotted her heart and cinched her throat so that she spoke in little more than a whisper. Was that the American Airlines? He nodded. Mysteriously, on the first day of sunny weather in weeks, the 707 had crashed in the Jamaica Bay, Queens, killing everyone aboard. Now, in 1965, it remained the worst commercial aviation disaster in the nation's history. And because of the unprecedented dramatic television coverage, the story was a permanent scar in Celestina's memory, although she had been living a continent away at the time. Miss White, he continued, still facing the window, not long before you arrived in surgery this morning, your sister died on the table. 
We hadn't delivered the baby yet, and perhaps couldn't have done so by cesarean in time to prevent brain damage. So for both the sake of the mother and child, heroic efforts were made to bring Feeney back and ensure continued circulation to the fetus until we could extract it. The sudden change of subject from the airliner crash to Feeney confused Celestina. Lipscomb shifted his gaze from the street below to the source of the rain. Feeney was not gone long, perhaps a minute. A minute and ten seconds at most. And when she was with us again, it was clear from her condition that the cardiac arrest was most likely secondary to a massive cerebral incident. She was disoriented, paralysis on the right side, with a distortion of the facial muscles that you saw. Her speech was slurred at first, but then something strange happened. Feeney's speech had been slurred later as well, immediately following the birth of the baby, when she had struggled to convey her desire to name her daughter Angel. An affecting but difficult to define note in Dr. Lipscomb's voice brought Celestina slowly out of the office chair to her feet. Perhaps it was wonder, or fear, or reverence. Perhaps all three. For a moment, Lipscomb continued, her voice became clear, no longer slurred. She raised her head from the pillow, her eyes fixed on me. All the confusion gone. She was so... Intense. She said, she said, Rowena loves you. A shiver of awe traveled Celestina's spine because she knew what the physician's next words would surely be. Rowena, he said, confirming her intuition, was my wife. As if a door briefly opened between this windless day and another world, a single gust rattled ran against the windows. Lipscomb turned to Celestina. Before lapsing into semi-coherence again, your sister said, Beasel and Feasel are safe with her. Which may sound less than coherent to you, but not to me. She waited expectantly. Those were Rowena's affectionate names for the boys when they were babies. Her private nonsense names for them, because she said they were like two beautiful little elves and not to have elfin names. Femi couldn't have known. No. Rowena dropped those names after our twins' first year. She and I were the only ones who ever used them. Our private little joke. Even the boys wouldn't have remembered. In the physician's eyes, a yearning to believe. In his face, a squint of skepticism. He was a man of medicine and science who had been served well by hard logic and by an unwavering commitment to reason. He wasn't prepared easily to accept the notion that logic and reason, while essential tools to anyone hoping to lead a full and happy life, were nevertheless insufficient to describe either the physical world or the human experience. Celestina was better equipped to embrace this transcendental experience for what it appeared to be. She was not one of those artists who celebrated chaos and disorder, or who found inspiration in pessimism and despair. Wherever her eyes came to rest, she saw order, purpose, exquisite design, and either the pale flicker or the fierce blaze of a humbling beauty. She perceived the uncanny not merely in old houses where ghosts were said to roam or in eerie experiences like the one Lipscomb had described, but every day in the pattern of a tree's branches, in the rapturous play of a dog with a tennis ball, in the white rolling currents of a snowstorm, in every aspect of the natural world in which insoluble mystery was as fundamental a component as light and darkness, as matter and energy, as time and space. Did your sister have other... Curious experiences? Lipscomb asked. Nothing like this. 
Was she lucky at cards? No luckier than me. Premonitions? No. Psychic abilities? She didn't have any. Might one day be scientifically verifiable. Unlike life after death, she asked. Hope on many wings hovered all around the physician, but he was afraid to let it roost. Celestina said, Femi wasn't a mind reader. That's science fiction, Dr. Lipscomb. He met her stare. He had no response. She didn't reach into your thoughts and pluck out the name Rowena, or Beazel, or Feazel. As though frightened of the gentle certainty in Celestina's eyes, the doctor turned away from her and towards the window once more. She moved beside him. For one minute, after her heart stopped the first time, she wasn't here in St. Mary's, was she? Her body, yes, that was still here, but not Femi. Dr. Lipscomb brought his hands to his face, covering his nose and mouth as earlier they had been covered with a surgical mask, as though he were in danger of drawing in with his breath an idea that would forever change him. If Femi wasn't here, Celestina said, and then she came back, she was somewhere during that minute, wasn't she? Beyond the window, behind veils of rain and fog, the metropolis appeared to be more enigmatic than Stonehenge, as unknowable as any city in our dreams. Behind his masking hands, the physician let out a thin sound, as though he were trying to pull from his heart an anguish that was embedded like a burr with countless sharp, hooked thorns. Celestina hesitated, feeling awkward, unsure. As always, in uncertainty, she asked herself what her mother would do in this situation. Grace, of infinite grace, unfailingly did precisely the needed thing, knew exactly the right words to console, to enlighten, to charm a smile out of even the most miserable. Often, however, the needed thing involved no words, because in our journey, we so often feel abandoned, and we need only to be reassured that we're not alone. She placed her right hand on his shoulder. At her touch, she felt a tension go out of the doctor. His hand slipped from his face, and he turned to her, shuddering not with fear, but with what might have been relief. He tried to speak, and when he could not, Celestina put her arms around him. She was not yet 21, and he was at least twice her age, but he leaned like a small child against her, and like a mother, she comforted him. Chapter 22 in good, dark suits, clean-shaven, as polished as their shoes, carrying valises. The three arrived in Junior's hospital room even before the usual start of the working day. Wise men without camels, not bearing gifts, but willing to pay a price for grief and loss. Two lawyers and a high-level political appointee. They represented the state, the country, and the insurance company in the matter of the improperly maintained railing on the observation platform at the fire tower. They could not have been more solemn or respectful if Naomi's corpse, stitched back together, pumped full of embalming fluid, painted with pancake makeup, dressed in white, with her cold hands clasping a Bible to her breast, had been reposing in a casket in this very room, surrounded by flowers and awaiting the arrival of mourners. They were all polite, soft-spoken, sad-eyed, oozing, unctuous concern, and so full of feverish calculation that Junior wouldn't have been surprised if they had set off the ceiling-mounted fire sprinklers. They introduced themselves as Knacker, Hickus, and Nork, but Junior didn't bother to associate names with faces, partly because the men were so alike in appearance and manner that their own mothers might have had difficulty figuring out which of them to blame for never calling. Besides, 
He was still tired from his recent ramble through the hospital and unnerved by the thought of some baleful-eyed Bartholomew prowling the world in search of him. After much oily commiseration, sanctimonious babble about Naomi having gone to a better place, and insincere talk of the government's desire always to ensure the public safety and to treat every citizen with compassion, Knacker or Hiscus or, or Nork finally got around to the issue of compensation. No word as crass as compensation was used, of course. Redress. Requital. Restitutional apology, which must have been learned in a law school where English was the second language. Even atonement. Junior drove them a little crazy by pretending not to understand their intent as they circled the issue like novice snake handlers warily looking for a safe grip on a coiled cobra. He was surprised they had come so soon, less than 24 hours after the tragedy. This was especially unusual, considering that a homicide detective was obsessed with the idea that rotting wood alone was not responsible for Naomi's death. Indeed, Junior suspected they might have been here of Vanadium's urging. The cop would be interested in determining how avaricious the mourning husband would prove to be when presented with the opportunity to turn his wife's cold flesh into cash. Knacker or Hiscus or... Nork were talking about an offering, as though Naomi was a goddess to whom they wished to present a penance of gold and jewels. Sick of them, Junior pretended that he was just now getting their drift. He didn't fake outrage or even distaste because he knew he might unwittingly oversell any strong reaction, striking a false note and raising suspicions. Instead, with grave courtesy, he quietly told them that he wanted no settlement for his wife's death or for his own suffering. Money can't replace her. I'd never be able to spend a penny of it. Not a penny. I'd have to give it away. What would be the point? After a silent moment of surprise, Nork or Knacker or Hiscus said, Your sentiment is understandable, Mr. Kane, but it's customary in these matters. Junior's throat wasn't half as sore as it had been the previous afternoon, and to these men, his soft, coarse voice must have sounded not abraded, but raw with emotion. I don't care what's customary. I don't want anything. I don't blame anyone. These things happen. If you have a liability release with you, I'll sign it right now. Hiscus, Nork, and Knacker exchanged sharp glances, nonplussed. Finally, one of them said, We couldn't do that, Mr. Kane. Not until you consulted an attorney. I don't want an attorney. He closed his eyes, lowered his head to the pillow and sighed. I just want peace. Knacker, Hiscus, and Nork all talking at once, then falling silent as if they were a single organism, then talking in rotation but interrupting one another, tried to advance their agenda. Although he had made no effort to summon them, tears spilled from Junior's closed eyes. They weren't drawn from him by thoughts of poor Naomi. These next few days, perhaps weeks, were going to be tedious until he could have Nurse Victoria Bressler. Under the circumstances, he had good reason to feel sorry for himself. His silent tears accomplished what his words could not. Nork, Knacker, and Hiscus retreated, urging him to speak to his attorney, promising to return, once more expressing their deepest condolences, perhaps as abashed as attorneys and political appointees could get, but certainly confused and unsure how to proceed when dealing with a man so in touch with greed, so free of anger, as forgiving as a widower Cain. Everything was proceeding precisely as Junior had envisioned in the instant when Naomi had first discovered the rotted section of the railing and had nearly fallen without assistance. 
The entire planet come to him, wholly formed in a blink. And during the following two circuits of the observation deck, he had molded over, seeking flaws but finding none. Thus far, there are only two unexpected developments, the first being his explosive vomiting. He hoped he would never have to endure another such episode. That Olympian purge had, however, made him appear to be both emotionally and physically devastated by the loss of his wife. He couldn't have calculated any strategy more likely to convince most people that he was innocent and, in fact, constitutionally incapable of premeditated murder. He had experienced considerable self-revelation during the past 18 hours, but of all the new qualities he had discovered in himself, Junior was most proud of the realization that he was such a profoundly sensitive person. This was an admirable character trait, but it would also be a useful screen behind which to commit whatever ruthless acts were required in this dangerous new life he had chosen. The other of the two unexpected developments was Vanadium, the lunatic lawman, tenacity personified, tenacity with a bad haircut. As his drying tears became stiff on his cheeks, Junior decided that he would most likely have to kill Vanadium to be rid of him and fully safe. No problem. And in spite of his exquisite sensitivity, he was convinced the waste in the detective would not trigger in him another bout of vomiting. If anything, he might pee his pants in sheer delight. Chapter 23 Celestina returned to room 724 to collect Femi's belongings from the tiny closet and from the nightstand. Her hands trembled as she attempted to fold her sister's clothes into the small suitcase. What should have been a simple task became a daunting challenge. The fabric seemed to come alive in her hands and slip through her fingers, resisting every attempt to organize it. When eventually she realized there was no reason to be neat, she tossed the garments into the bag without concern for wrinkling them. Just as Celestina snapped shut the latches on the suitcase and turned to the door, a nurse's aide entered, pushing a cart loaded with towels and bed linens. This was the same woman who had been stripped in the second bed when Celestina arrived earlier. Now she was here to remake the first. I'm so sorry about your sister, the aide said. Thank you. She was so sweet. Celestina nodded, unable to respond to the aide's kindness. Sometimes kindness can shatter as easily as soothe. What room has Miss Lombardi been moved to? She asked. I'd like to... to see her before I go. Oh... Didn't you know? I'm sorry, but she's gone too. Gone, Celestina said, but understood. Indeed, subconsciously, she had known that Nella was gone since receiving the call at 4.15 this morning. When the old woman had finished what she needed to say, the silence on the line had been eerily perfect, without one crackle of static or electronic murmur, unlike anything Celestina had ever heard on the telephone before. She died last night, said the aide. Do you know when? The time of death? A few minutes after midnight. You're sure? Of the time, I mean. I had just come on duty. I'm working a shift and a half today. She passed away in the coma, without waking. In Celestina's mind, as clear as it had been on the phone at 4.15 a.m., the frail voice of an old woman warned of Femi's crisis. Come now. What? Come now. Come quickly. Who is this? Nella Lombardi, come now. Your sister will soon be dying. If the call had really come from Miss Lombardi, she had placed it more than four hours after she died. And if it hadn't come from the old woman, who had impersonated her, and why? When Celestina had arrived at the hospital, 20 minutes later, Sister Josephina had expressed surprise. 
I didn't know they had been able to reach you. They'd only started trying 10 minutes ago. The call from Nell Lombardi had come before Femi was stricken with eclamptic seizures and rushed to surgery. Your sister will soon be dying. Are you all right, dear? The nurse's aide asked. Celestina nodded, swallowed hard. Bitterness had flooded her heart when Femi died, and hatred for the child that had lived at the mother's expense. Feelings she knew were not worthy of her, but which she could not cast out. These two amazements, Dr. Lipscomb's story and Nella's phone call, were an antidote to hatred, a balm for anger, but they also left her half-dazed. Yes, thank you, she told the aide. I'll be okay. Carrying the suitcase, she left room 724. In the corridor, she halted, looked left, looked right, and didn't know where to go. Had Nella Lombardi, no longer this beautiful world, reached back across the void to bring two sisters together in time for them to say goodbye to each other? And had Femi, retrieved from death by the resuscitation procedures of the surgical team, repaid Nella's kindness with her own stunning message to Lipscomb? From childhood, Celestina was encouraged to be confident that life had meaning, and when she needed to share that belief with Dr. Lipscomb as he struggled to come to terms with his experiences in the operating room, she had done so without hesitation. Strangely, however, she herself was having difficulty absorbing these two small miracles. Although she was aware that these extraordinary events would shape the rest of her life, beginning with her actions in the hours immediately ahead of her, she could not clearly see what she ought to do next. At the core of her confusion was conflict of mind and heart, reason and faith, but also a battle between desire and duty. Until she was able to reconcile these opposed forces, she was all but paralyzed by indecision. She walked the corridor until she came to a room with empty beds. Without turning on the lights, she entered, put down the suitcase, and sat in a chair by the window. Even as the morning matured, the fog and rain conspired to bar all but a faint gray daylight from St. Mary's. Shadows flourished. Celestina sat studying her hands, so dark in the darkness. Eventually, she discovered within herself all the light that she needed to find her way through the crucial hours immediately ahead. At last, she knew what she must do, but she was not certain that she possessed the fortitude to do it. Her hands were slender, long-fingered, graceful, the hands of an artist. They were not powerful hands. She thought of herself as a creative person, a capable and efficient and committed person, but she did not think of herself as a strong person. Yes, she would need great strength for what lay ahead. Time to go. Time to do what must be done. She could not get up from the chair. Do what must be done. She was too scared to move. Chapter 24 Eat them in the pies into the blue morning following the storm had a schedule to keep and the hungry to satisfy. He drove his yellow and white 1955 Ford Country Squire station wagon. He had bought the car with some of the last money he had earned in the years when he had been able to hold a job before his problem. Once he had been a superb driver. For the past decade, his performance behind the wheel depended on his mood. Sometimes, just the thought of getting in the car and venturing into the dangerous world was intolerable. Then he settled into his lazy boy and waited for the natural disaster to soon scrub him off the earth as though he never existed. This morning, only his love for his sister Agnes gave him the courage to drive and become the pie man. 
Agnes's big brother by six years, Edom had lived in one of the two apartments above the large detached garage behind the main house since he was 25 when he left the working world. He was now 36. Edom's twin, Jacob, who had never held a job, lived in the second apartment. He had been there since graduating from high school. Agnes, who inherited the property, would have welcomed her brothers in the main house, although both were willing to visit her for occasional dinner or to sit in rocking chairs on the porch on a summer night. Neither could abide living in that ominous place. Too much had happened in those rooms. They were stained dark with family history, and in the night, when either Edom or Jacob slept under that gabled roof, the past came alive again in dreams. Edom marveled at Agnes's ability to rise above the past and transcend so many years of torment. She was able to see the house as simple shelter, or as to her brothers, it was, and always would be, the place in which their spirits had been shattered. Even living within sight of it would have been out of the question if they had been employed with options. This was one of the many things about Agnes that amazed Edom. If he had dared to make a list of all the qualities that he admired in her, he would have sunk into despair at the consideration of how much better she had coped with adversity than either he or Jacob. When Agnes had asked him to deliver the pies before she had set out with Joey for the hospital the previous day, Edom had wanted to beg off, but he had agreed without hesitation. He was prepared to suffer every viciousness that nature could throw at him in this life, but he could not endure seeing disappointment in his sister's eyes. Not that she ever gave any indication that her brothers were other than a source of pride for her. She treated them always with respect, tenderness, and love, as if unaware of their shortcomings. She dealt with them equally, too, favoring neither, except in the matter of pie delivery. On those rare occasions when she could not make these rounds for herself, and when she had no one to turn to but a brother, Agnes always asked for Edom's help. Jacob scared people. He was Edom's identical twin, with Edom's boyish and pleasant face, as soft-spoken as Edom, well-barbered and neatly groomed. Nevertheless, on the same mission of mercy as Edom, Jacob would lead the pie recipients in a state of deep uneasiness, if not outright terror. In his wake, they would bar the doors, load guns if they owned any, and lay sleepless for a night or two. Consequently, Edom was abroad in the land with pies and parcels, following a list of names and addresses provided by his sister, even though he believed an unprecedentedly violent earthquake, the fabled big one, was likely to strike before noon certainly before dinner. This was the last day of the rest of his life. The strange barrage of lightning, putting an end to the rain rather than initiating it, had been a clue. The rapid clearing of the sky, indicating a stiff wind at high altitudes while stillness prevailed at the ground level. A sudden plunge in the humidity and the unseasonable warmth confirmed the coming catastrophe. Earthquake weather. Southern Californians have many definitions of that term, but Edom knew he was right this time. Thunder will roll again soon but it would arise from underfoot. Driving defensively, keenly alert for toppling telephone poles, collapsing bridges, and not least of all the abrupt appearance of cars swallowing fissures in the pavement, Edom arrived at the first address on Agnes's list. The modest clapboard house had received no maintenance in a long time. Slivered by years of insistent sun, bare wood showed through peeling paint like dark bones. At the end of a gravel driveway, a battered Chevy pickup stood on bald tires under a sagging carport. Here, on the eastern outskirts of Bright Beach, on the side of the hills that offered no view of the sea, the tireless desert encroached when residents were not diligent. Sage and wild sorrel and all manner of scrub bristle where backyards ended. 
The recent storm had blown tumbleweeds out of the barrens. They were snared in domestic shrubs, piled against one wall of the house. Green during this rainy season, the lawn, lacking a sprinkler system, would be crisp and brown April through November. Even in this lush phase, it was as much weeds and creeping samber as grass. Carrying one of the six blueberry pies, Eden walked through the unmown lawn and up the swayback steps onto the front porch. This was not a house he would have chose to occupy when the quake of the century rocked the coast and leveled mighty cities. Agnes's instructions, unfortunately, were that Edom must not merely drop the gifts and run, but must visit for a short while and be as neighborly as it was within his nature to be. Jolene Clefton answered his knock, dowdy in her early fifties wearing a shapeless house dress. Flyaway brown hair is lusterless and Mojave dust. Her face was enlivened by a wealth of freckles, however, and her voice was both musical and warm. Edom, you look as handsome as that singer on the Lawrence Welk show. You really do. Come in, come in. As Jolene stepped aside to let him enter, Edom said, Agnes was in a baking frenzy again. We'll be eating blueberry pie till we're blue. She said maybe you'll relieve us of one. Thank you, Edom. Where is herself this morning? Though she tried to hide it, Jolene was disappointed. Anyone would have been that Edom rather than Agnes was at her door. He took no offense. She had the baby last night, he announced. With a girlish cry of delight, Jolene shouted to her husband, Bill, who wasn't here in the living room. Agnes had her baby. A boy, Edom said. She named him Bartholomew. It's a boy named Bartholomew, Jolene shouted to Bill. And then she urged Edom to follow her into the kitchen. Outside in the station wagon were boxes of groceries, a smoked ham, fancy canned goods for the Cleftons. Edom would carry those in later making it seem as if the groceries were an afterthought. According to Agnes, bringing the homemade pie first and sitting for a spell made the entire delivery seem not like an act of charity, but like simple sharing by a friend. The kitchen was small, with ancient appliances, but it was bright and clean, and the air smelled of cinnamon and vanilla. Bill was not here either. Jolene pulled out a chair from the kitchen table. Sit, sit. She put the pie on the counter and brought three coffee mugs to the table. I bet he's a special boy. A fine boy, isn't he? I haven't seen him. Talked to Agnes on the phone this morning and she said he's wonderful. A great thatch of hair. Born with a head full of hair, Jolene shouted to her husband as she filled the mugs with coffee. From the far end of the house came a low, rhythmic thumping. Bill making his way towards the kitchen. She said his eyes are especially beautiful. Emeralds and sapphire, she said. Calls them Tiffany eyes. The boy has such eyes? Jolene shouted to Bill. As Jolene brought plates and a coffee cake to the table, Bill arrived, pulling himself along on a pair of sturdy canes. He was in his 50s too, but looked 10 years older than his wife. Blamed time for his thinning white hair, but his ruddy, bloated face was the consequence of illness and medication. Rheumatoid arthritis had twisted his hips. He should have graduated to Crutcher or Walker, but pride kept him on the canes. Pride, too, had kept him on the job long after pain should have prevented him from working. Unemployed now for five years, he was trying, with diminishing success, to live on disability payments. Bill swung into a chair and hooked the canes on the back of it. He held out his right hand to eat them. The hand was gnarled, the knuckles swollen and misshapen. Edom pressed it lightly, afraid of causing pain even with a gentle touch. 
Tell us all about the baby, Bill encouraged. Where'd they get the name? Bartholomew. I'm not really sure. Edom accepted a plate with a slice of cake from Jolene. As far as I know, it wasn't on their list of favorites. He didn't have much to say about the baby. Only what Agnes had told him. He had already related most of these details to Jolene. Nonetheless, he went through it all again. He embellished a little, in fact, stalling for time, dreading a question that would force him to share within the bad news. And here it came, from Bill. Is Joey just bursting with pride? Edom's mouth was full, so he was spared the expectation of an immediate answer. He chewed until it seemed that his slice of cake must be as tough as gristle. When he realized Jolene was staring curiously, he nodded as though answering Bill's question. He paid for this deception, the nod, when he tried to swallow the cake and couldn't get it down. Afraid of choking, he grabbed his coffee and dislodged a stubborn water with hot black brew. He couldn't talk about Joey. Breaking the news would be like murder. Until Edom actually told someone about the accident, Joey wasn't really dead. Words made it real. Until Edom spoke the words, Joey was still alive somehow. At least for Jolene and Bill. Dang, I feel that. It was a crazy thought. Irrational. Nonetheless, the news about Joey stuck in his throat more stubbornly than the water cake. He spoke instead about a subject with which he was comfortable. Doomsday. Does this seem like earthquake weather to you? Surprised, Bill said, it's a fine day for January. The thousand year quake is overdue, Edom warned. Thousand year, Jolene said, frowning. The San Andreas should have a magnitude 8.5 or greater quake every thousand years to relieve stress from the fault. It's hundreds of years overdue. Well, it won't happen on the day Agnes's baby is born, I'll guarantee you that, Jolene said. He was born yesterday. Not today, Edom said glumly. When the thousand year quake hits, skyscrapers will pancake, bridges crumble, dams break. In three minutes, a million people will die between San Diego and Santa Barbara. Then I'd better have more cake, Bill said, pushing his plate towards Jolene. Oil and natural gas pipelines will fracture, explode. A sea of fire will wash cities, killing hundreds of thousands more. You figure all it is, Jolene asked, because Mother Nature gives us a nice warm day in January? Nature has no maternal instincts, Edom said quietly but with conviction. To think otherwise is sheer sentimentality at its worst. Nature is our enemy. She's a vicious killer. Jolene started to refill his coffee mug, then thought better of it. Maybe you don't need any more caffeine, Edom. Do you know about the earthquake that destroyed 70% of Tokyo and all of Yokohama on September 1st, 1923? He asked. And they still had enough gumption left to fight World War II, Bill noted. After the quake, Edom said, 40,000 people took refuge in a 200-acre open area, a military depot. A quake-related fire swept through so fast they were killed standing up. So tightly packed together, they died as a solid mass of bodies. Well, we have earthquakes here, Jolene said, but back east, they have all those hurricanes. Our new roof, Bill said, pointing overhead, will hold through any hurricane. Fine work. You tell Agnes what fine work it is. Having gotten the new roof for the McCoss, Agnes subsequently put together donations from a dozen individuals and one church group to cover all but $200 of the outlay. The hurricane that hit Galveston, Texas back in 1900 killed 6,000 people, Edom said. 
virtually obliterated the place. That was all of 65 years ago, Jolene said. Less than half a year ago, Hurricane Flora, she killed over 6,000 in the Caribbean. Wouldn't live in the Caribbean if you paid me, Bill said. All that humidity, all those bugs. But nothing equals a quake for killing. Big one in Shangxi, China, killed 830,000. Bill wasn't impressed. They build houses out of mud in China. No wonder everything falls down. This is back on January 24th, 1556, said Eden with unhesitating authority, for he had memorized tens of thousands of facts about the worst natural disasters in history. 1556? Bill frowned. Hell, the Chinese probably didn't even have mud back then. Fortifying herself with more coffee, Jolene said, Edom, you're going to tell us how Joey's coping with fatherhood. Glancing at his wristwatch with alarm, Edom bolted up from his chair. Look at the time. Agnes gave me a lot to do, and here I am rattling on about earthquakes and cyclones. Hurricanes, Bill corrected. They're different from cyclones, aren't they? Don't get me started on cyclones. Edom hurried through the house and out to the station wagon to fetch the boxes of groceries. The blue vault above, cloudless now, was the most threatening sky that Edom had ever seen. The air was astonishingly dry so soon after a storm, and still, hushed, earthquake weather. Before this momentous day was done, great timblers and 500-foot tidal waves would rock and swamp the coast. Chapter 25 Of the seven newborns, none was fussing, too fresh to the world to realize how much there was here to fear. One nurse and one nun brought Celestine into the crash behind the viewing window. She strove to appear calm, and she must have succeeded, because neither woman seemed to realize she was scared almost to the point of paralysis. She moved woodenly, joints stiff, muscles tense. The nurse lifted the infant from its bassinet. She gave it to the nun. Cradling the baby, the nun turned with it to Celestina, folding back a thin blanket to present her with a good look at the tiny girl. Breath held, Celestina confirmed what she had suspected about the child since the quick glimpse she had had in the surgery. Its skin was cafe au lait, with a warming touch of caramel. Over many proud generations, and at least to the extent of second cousins, no one on either side of Celestina's family had skin of this light color. They were without exception medium to dark mahogany, many shades darker than this infant. Femi's rapist must have been a white man. Someone she had known. Someone Celestina, too, might know. He lived in or around Spruce Hills, because Femi had considered him still to be a threat. Celestina had no illusions about playing detective. She would never be able to track down the bastard, and she had no stomach for confronting him. Anyway, the thing that scared her was not the monstrous father of this child. The fearsome thing was the decision that she had made a few minutes ago in the unused hospital room on the seventh floor. Her entire future was at stake if she acted as she had decided to act. Here, in the presence of the baby, within the next minute or two, she must either change her mind or commit herself to a more difficult and challenging life than any she had envisioned only this morning. May I? she asked, holding out her arms. Without hesitation, the nun transferred the infant to Celestina. The baby felt too light to be real. She weighed 5 pounds, 14 ounces, but she seemed lighter than air, as though she might float up and out of her aunt's arms. Celestina stared at the small, brown face, opening herself to the anger and hatred with which she had regarded this child in the operating room. 
If the nun and the nurse could know the loathing that Celestina had felt earlier, they would never allow her here in the creche. Never trust her with this newborn. This spawn of violence. This killer of her sister. She searched the child's unfocused eyes for some sign of the hateful father's wickedness. The little hands, so weak now but someday strong, would they eventually be capable of savagery as were the father's hands? This misbegotten offspring, this seed of a demonic man whom Femi herself had called sick and evil. However innocent looking now, what pain might she eventually inflict on others? What outrages might she commit in years to come? Although Celestina searched intently, she could not glimpse the father's evil in the child. Instead, she saw Feeney reborn. She saw, as well, a child endangered. Somewhere out there was a rapist capable of extreme cruelty and violence. A man who would, if Feeney was correct, react unpredictably if ever he learned of his daughter's existence. Angel, if that's what she were eventually to be named, lived under a threat as surely as had all the children of Bethlehem, who had been slain according to the decree of King Herod. The baby curled one small hand around her aunt's index finger. So tiny, fragile, she nonetheless gripped with surprising tenacity. Do what must be done. Returning the newborn to the nun, Celestina asked for the use of a telephone and for privacy. The social worker's office once more. Rain tapping lightly at the window where Dr. Lipscomb had stared intently into the fog as he tried to avoid confronting the life-changing revelation that Femi, speaking with the special knowledge of the once dead, had shown him. Sitting at the desk, Celestina phoned her parents again. She shook uncontrollably, but her voice was steady. Her mother and father used different extensions, both on the line with her. I want you to adopt the baby. Before they could react, she hurried on. I won't be 21 for four months yet, and even then they might give me trouble about adopting, even though I'm her aunt, because I'm single. But if you adopt her, I'll raise her. I promise I will. I'll take full responsibility. You won't have to worry that I'll regret it or that I'll ever want to drop her in your laps and escape the responsibility. She'll have to be the center of my life from here on. I understand that. I accept it. I embrace it. She worried that they would argue with her. And though she knew that she was committed in her decision, she was afraid to have that commitment tested just yet. Instead, her father asked, Is this emotion talking, Seely? Or is this brain just as much as heart? Both. Brain and heart. But I've thought it through, Daddy. More than anything in my life, I've thought this through. What aren't you telling us, her mother pressed, intuiting the existence of a larger story, if not the amazing nature of it. Celestina told them about Nella Lombardi and about the message Femi delivered to Dr. Lipscomb after being resuscitated. Femi was so special. There's something special about her baby, too. Remember the father, Grace cautioned. The reverend added, yes, remember, if blood tells... We don't believe it does, do we, Daddy? We don't believe blood tells. We believe we're born to hope, under a mantle of mercy, don't we? Yes, he says softly. We do. A siren in the city welled toward St. Mary's, an ambulance, through streets bursting with hope, always this lament for the dying. Celestina looked up from the scarred top of the desk towards the fog-white sky beyond the window. From reality to the promise, she told them of Femi's request that the baby be named Angel. 
At the time, I assumed she wasn't able to think clearly because of the stroke. If the baby was going to be adopted out, the adoptive parents would name it. But I think she understood, or somehow knew, that I would want to do this. That I would have to do this. Celie, her mother said, I'm so proud of you. I love you so much for wanting this. But how is it possible to carry on with your studies, your work, and take care of a baby? Celestina's parents weren't very well off. Her father's church was small and humble. They managed to worry up tuition for art school, but Celestina worked as a waitress to pay for her studio apartment and other needs. I don't have to graduate in the spring of next year. I could take fewer classes, graduate the spring after. That's no big deal. Oh, Celie. She rushed on. I'm one of the best waitresses they have, so if I ask for dinner shifts only, I'll get them. Tips are better at dinner, and working the one shift four and a half to five hours, I have a regular schedule. Then who will be with the baby? Sitters, friends, relatives of friends, people I can trust. I can afford sitters if I'm getting only dinner tips. Better we should raise her, your father and me. No, Mom, that won't work. You know it won't. The Reverend said, I'm sure you underestimate my parishioners, Celestina. They won't be scandalized. They'll open their hearts. It isn't that, Daddy. You remember, when we were all together the day before yesterday, how afraid Femi was of this man. Not just for herself, for the baby. I won't have the baby here. If he realized he made a baby with me, it'll make him crazy. I know it will. He won't harm a little child, her mother said. He wouldn't have any reason. If he's crazy and evil, then he doesn't need a reason. I think Femi was convinced he'd killed the baby. And since we don't know who this man is, we have to trust her instincts. If he's such a monster, then if he ever learns about the baby, her mother worried. Maybe you won't be safe even in San Francisco. He'll never know. We have to make sure he'll never know. Her parents were silent, contemplating. From the corner of the desk, Celestina picked up a framed photo of the social worker and her family. Husband, wife, daughter, son. The little girl smiled shyly through braces. The boy was impish. In this portrait, she saw bravery beyond words. Creating a family in this turbulent world is an act of faith. A wager that against all odds there will be a future. That love can last. That the heart can triumph against all adversities and even against the grinding will of time. Grace, the reverend said, what do you want to do? This is a very hard thing you're putting on yourself, Celie, her mother warned. I know. Honey, it's one thing to be a loving sister, but there's a world of difference between that and being a martyr. I held Femi's baby, Mom. I held her in my arms. What I felt wasn't just sentimental gush. You sound so sure. When hasn't she since the age of three, her father said with great affection. I'm meant to be this baby's guardian, Celestina said, to keep her safe. She's special, but I'm no selfless martyr. There's joy in this for me, already at just the thought of it. I'm scared, sure. Oh, Lord, am I scared, but there's joy, too. Brain and heart, her father asked again. All of both, she confirmed. What I insist upon, said her mother, is coming down there for a few months at the beginning to help you until you get organized, until you figure out the rhythm of it. And thus it was agreed. Although sitting in a chair, Celestina felt herself crossing a deep divide between her old life and her new, between the future that might have been and the future that would be.
She was not prepared to raise a baby, but she will learn what she needed to know. Her ancestors had endured slavery, and on their shoulders, on the shoulders of the generation, she now stood free. What sacrifice she made for this child cannot rightly be called sacrifice at all, not in the harsh light of history. Compared to what others had undergone, this was easy duty. Generations had not struggled so she could shirk it. This was honor and family. This was life, and everyone lived his life in the shadow of one solemn obligation or another. Likewise, she wasn't prepared to deal with the monster like the father if one day he came for Angel. And he would come. She knew. In these events, as in all things, Celestina White glimpsed a pattern, complex and mysterious, and to the eye of an artist, the symmetry of the design required that one day the father would come. She wasn't prepared to deal with the creep now, but by the time that he arrived, she'll be ready for him. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, leave a review on Spotify, it takes like 13 seconds, leave a review on Podchaser, copy and paste that in the Apple Podcasts, and copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can also donate to the show through patreon.com slash single simulcast or on buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app, you can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you again for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'ma holler at you later. Peace. Intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.